You may be wondering when we're ever going to get back into a book of the Bible and walk all the way through. It's coming soon, and I'm thrilled to tell you that we're going to be going through the Gospel of John. And um, I can't give you an exact date because we are going to be doing this teaching series on biblical giving, so that'll take a few weeks. I've got a friend from Los Angeles that I've asked to come and preach, and I think he'll be here on the 29th, Han Cho, a dear friend of mine who's an elder at Grace Church, and many of you have gotten to know Han. He's a delightful guy, and uh, so I'm excited about him coming. But you can be excited about the Gospel of John and be thinking about that, maybe even reading and preparing for our time in the Gospel of John, and we'll see what the Lord will do to strengthen us from that wonderful book. But this morning we're in Hebrews chapter 5, and I selected this particular passage for a particular reason, and that'll be obvious as we go through this text. Last week we spent our time talking about good works, the call to good works, really the predestination of good works for those to whom God has granted salvation by grace through faith. And what a marvelous text, what a really rudimentary text in the Christian faith to help us understand that God's elective choice does not mean that a person who is of the elect can skate. In fact, quite the opposite. One who has been saved as a result of God's predeterminative choice in eternity past is one whose life proves that because of his good works. It's a great joy for me to talk to other people about you to tell others about our local church. Years ago, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times called The Church with 900 Ministers. This was about Grace Community Church. I believe it was back in the early 80s. The point of that article was to say that this is a church that just doesn't gather to hear the teaching, which has become the common practice In our day, it's been that for a long, long time. But because of the teaching, because the teaching exposes the reality that every Christian is a minister, every Christian is a counselor, every Christian is a servant, every Christian is an equally important member of the body of Christ, which has many members. And I think a similar article could be written about you. I remember one person saying years ago, uh, in response to someone else who had said, it seems like all of you serve, the response was, well, it's expected. Yeah, because it's obvious throughout the Scripture. You want to have a rich understanding of that? Do a concordance study in the one another's. The one another's. There's about 60 or so one another's throughout the Bible. Those one another's are all about the body serving the body and the body being served by the body. The richer texts on that issue, the lengthier texts are 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and then a more concentrated but still very important text in Ephesians 4 and even a little bit in Colossians 3. All of those texts, the embodiment of Paul's use of the illustration of the body So as we've looked at 2 Timothy 3 recently that speaks to 
the man of God who would teach, and as revealed in Ephesians 4, that that teaching is intended to equip, that the whole body would grow up into Christ. There's a specific call on every one of you. That's a specific call to the pastor, to the the growing shepherd or the training pastor. But there's a call in this text for you and for me, every one of us. It's very similar to that issue in 2 Timothy 3. But it's a general, more of a shotgun approach as opposed to the 2 Timothy 3 text, which is more of a sniper shot, specifically to men in the pastorate. So I want to ask you to look at me, uh, not at me, you're already doing that. Look with me at Hebrews 5. I want to read verses 1 through 14, and then we'll go back and look at it together. I want to ask you this morning, as I know you do anyway, I know you come here expecting God to do a work in your heart, to do a work in our church. And all of us, I would imagine, who come here to hear the Word of God have some expectation that the Lord's going to do a work in our particular hearts, in our particular circumstances. You come here with troubles on your heart, right? You come here with vicissitudes that you are convinced are well within the sovereignty of God, and yet you're discouraged. And you're trusting, you're hoping, you're pleading with God that he will use me to faithfully exposit the Scripture in such a way that will cause you to leave here feeling like you can fly spiritually. Let's ask the Lord to do that. While we do that, I want to ask you to pray with me for Eric Puentes. Eric is preaching today at Faith Bible Church in northwest San Bernardino, where my dear friend Scott Anderson pastors. So let's pray before we read this text. Father, we do ask that you would use this powerful passage of Scripture to instill in each of us an awareness that we need to be teachers. Every one of us. Communicators. Proclaimers. Those who would declare the Word of God honestly, accurately, passionately, in a way that's reflective of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And even now in these moments, as Eric does that very thing before the congregation at Faith Bible Church, we trust that you'll use him effectively. Help him to be humble. We pray that you would use his obvious giftedness to proclaim truth in a manner that would reach the hearts of those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 14. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. After this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. As you see there, here in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, the author reveals four marks that separate the spiritual child from the spiritual adult so that we may all grow into maturity, discerning good from evil and effectively teaching God's word to others. The standard disagreement over the book of Hebrews is whether or not Paul is the author Robert Thomas, a professor of mine at the Master's Seminary, gives multiple explanations of the facts, so to speak, about the writer of Hebrews. Among those includes the reality from Hebrews 2 is that he is a second-generation Christian. Paul is not a second-generation Christian. Therefore, that eliminates the possibility that Paul is the author In addition to that, the writing style is substantially different from Paul. It's a huge issue. All of the epistles of Paul, the 13 epistles of Paul, include the same writing style. There's no real variation. Hebrews is substantially different in that way. But also, in each of Paul's letters, as you know, Paul says that he wrote it. And in this one, he doesn't. We can lean heavily on the third century church father, Origen, who said, we simply don't know who wrote Hebrews. Now, there was a tradition in the first century, and a lot of times people feel like, well, if it was a tradition earlier on, it must have been true, right? Those Christians were in closer chronological proximity to Jesus and the apostles, and therefore they must have held to a stronger tradition. But many times tradition is what? It's wrong. Many times. And I think we have enough facts to know that Paul's not the author of the book of Hebrews. We'll just call the author of the book of Hebrews the author. But the real issue is that the writer of Hebrews writes to Christians, and and really specifically or more directly in the context and the the original uh, recipients of the book, we're looking at Jewish Christians. And he goes back and forth writing as if some of them are in fact Christians, and some of them are apostates, some of them are simply unconverted Jews committed to their Judaism. And in this case, in our text this morning that we're going to look at, he's writing to them, really calling them to abandon that preliminary Judaism that laid a foundation for Christianity. He's calling them, and really he's calling you and me to seek the deeper truths of the Christian faith so that we can communicate them in a helpful way way. This is really a polarizing text of Scripture. I am certain beyond a shadow of doubt there will be at least a handful of you who will be very discouraged from hearing this text. 
if not all of you on some level, including myself, even as I prayed earlier, and this is really the tradition of Reformed churches, to have some sort of a high priestly prayer in the beginning of the worship service that acknowledges sin, and then at the same time rejoices with equal fervor in the covering of that sin. Try to establish that as the pattern of that opening prayer. And as we work through the book of Hebrews, if we were to go through the whole book, we would see that that's exactly what takes place. There is a deep dependence upon the reality that Christ, in fact, covered sin, but that by no means licenses you or me to act like it's not a reality, to act like we're not guilty, to act as if somehow or another our sin didn't happen. You see, Christ's death by no means erased your sin. It covered it. It blotted it out. It didn't make it not reality. It's such that he being that substitutionary, atoning, propitiatory Savior received the wrath of God by taking on your sin. And in so doing, God treats you as if you did not sin, as if you have the righteousness of Christ, which you do, by the way, but it is the righteousness of Christ, not yours. And because of that, we can rejoice. We can walk in this earthly, fleshly vessel that's weak and inadequate and rejoice because one day that will be exchanged for a spiritual body, a glorious body, a body that's perfect, with no weakness, no pain, no sorrow, no sin. But for now, we have the great privilege, in this book in particular, to see what the Lord has for us, that we would be useful for His glory and for the growth of the body of Christ, the spiritual growth. Three weeks ago, when we were in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, I told you that Paul there was not speaking directly to every Christian, but specifically to pastors or would-be pastors. He's reminding young Timothy, pastor of the Anchor Bible Church of Ephesus, <laughs> to remain committed to the sufficiency of the Word of God because it alone is inspired by God or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You remember that? Three weeks ago, we spent the whole time in that text, and I told you a number of times that this text is written directly to the shepherd, the one who leads the flock. And I believe that according to Titus 1, that is intended to be a plurality of leaders. You don't have one pastor. You really have 12 there are 12 men in our church who operate as under-shepherds with equal responsibility. I have more duties. I have more time to give more time to those duties. But the men in our church who operate as elders, bishops, to use biblical terminology, do so because they have shown themselves to be above reproach and desire the accountability that nurtures, that really engenders that above reproach reality. Here, the man of God is a common reference to the shepherd or the pastor. But in our text this morning, the author is speaking to all of those 
for whom Jesus Christ is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hebrews 5, 9. I saw a quote from Matt Chandler. It said, one of the most difficult responsibilities or the difficult realities in ministry, especially in what he calls the Bible Belt, which is where I grew up, is that you're attempting to minister to people who think they are Christians when they are not Christians. And that's not some hard-hearted, pejorative comment about people who are not better than those who are Christians. It's the reality that teaching is so bad in so many pulpits. There's no real faithfulness to say the hard things because there's no real faithfulness to study and there's only a commitment to do whatever it takes to fill the empty seats. The writer here in Hebrews is calling you and me to acknowledge as those who have experienced the source of eternal salvation, those who obey him, that we are responsible for communicating that truth in a way that others would obey him. The author is speaking to you. All of you who have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, those who hold fast our confession. That's who he's speaking to. Do you hold fast to your confession of Jesus Christ? So, speaking directly to you. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4. He's speaking to those who have believed in the completed work of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. Those who have obeyed the Savior. Those who have drawn near to the throne of grace and have received mercy and found grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. Is that you? Is that what you do? You draw near to the throne of grace in time of need, leaning on that mercy, leaning on that grace. He is speaking to all those who strive to enter that rest, the rest that he has provided. You find your rest in other things? You're looking for rest in other sources? Or do you look for rest in Jesus Christ? He's speaking to all those who strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall into disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4, 11 to 12. This letter is for those who obey the word of God. That's who it's for. Now be careful at this point that you don't say, yeah, that's me. Of course I obey the word of God. You examine you. And the best... Examination you can do of you is to include the body. What good would it be if you went to the doctor and said, you know, I'm really um, not in need of help. I, I think I broke my arm, but I'm pretty sure my arm can do that examination just fine without your help. I just came to say hi. No, of course you wouldn't do that. And the trouble is so often there are those who, you know, to illustrate it spiritually, don't know that they have a broken arm. So they're not seeking the interest of those who can be helped. And really, 
to deal with the reality of the illustration that Paul uses with the body. The broken arm needs the rest of the body, his own personal body to compensate. The author here is speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians. And I must tell you, it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke. It's a strong one. There is a need for every believer to teach. If you were feeling left out, which you shouldn't have, when we dealt with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, oh, you're not left out. You're a Christian. You should be teaching the Word of God. Now, if you're wondering, do I mean like up here in front of everybody? Not necessarily. For some of you, yes. For some of you, maybe you are teaching the Word of God in some venue, but perhaps because of your giftedness, you should be up here from time to time. Maybe there are young, budding Timothys, young, budding pastors in our church, maybe on the other side of that wall, or maybe in this room. Your role and my role is to teach the Word of God such that the Lord would stir up that giftedness in those who are gifted in that way. That's why we gather. You ever notice that when you make a decision that you're going to have some sort of family time and abandon the Lord's Day, that it's a whole lot easier to do it again the next week? And maybe even the next week? Now, that's not to say that there are not those times where that's appropriate. Certainly it is, and that's not my role to make that call for you. But the writer of Hebrews calls you and me to not forsake the fellowship of the believers. Why? Because we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what he says. You can't do that if you're not fellowshipping with the believers, if you're not with the body. You can't do that. It's impossible. You've got to be with each other. See, there's a need for you to be so engaged in the theology of the Scripture that you're able to communicate it clearly, helpfully, in a way that nurtures growth in others. There's the gift of teaching, yes. You see that in a handful of places throughout the Scripture, but there's also this, no way around it, that you would teach. In fact, he says many of you should be teachers. Now, I titled the message Becoming a Mature Teaching Christian. I thought about calling it Becoming a Mature Christian Teacher, which is the terminology that the author uses. But I wanted to ensure by way of the title that you understand that in our context, the teacher many times is the person who stands in front of the whole class. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about lifestyle teaching, really walking as a teacher, really teaching as you go. I instruct my boys all the time. Quaid uh, stopped in a couple days ago. Kimberly will often bring me something and drop it off, usually food, and uh, one of the boys will bring it in. And it was Quaid's time to bring it in. And we had a few minutes. We sat and talked, and he had a question for me. He said, what does the word admin mean? And I said, well, how do you spell it? I'm not sure what he, I'm, I'm, is he saying admin, like short for administration? How do you spell it? He said, I think it's A-D-M-I-N. I said, well, if that's what it was, and then I explained what secular organizational administration is, and then what I explained, I explained from the scripture that the gift of administration is the gift of leadership. It was a great joy. Now, I, don't, I doubt he understood all of it, but I know he understood some of it. But that's my life, and if you're a parent, that's your life. And I grew up with absolutely zero instruction from my parents. 
I don't remember one single time where my mom or my dad said, hey, let's sit down and talk about this, and they explained something to me. That might sound foreign to you. You might have a, had a parent or have a parent who's constantly explaining things to you, and you're looking for a break. <laughs> but for me, it's just such a great joy to explain things, no matter what it is, to my kids. There might be reasons that you're not teaching. Maybe you're concerned about the stricter judgment given to those who teach. And you probably know someone, you probably know someone in a pastoral context who's probably going to experience that stricter judgment because he's not teaching faithfully. There are plenty of them. Just turn on TBN, you'll see five or six within a couple hours. Paula White is the most prevalent of our day. Um, she apparently is going to be speaking or doing something at the presidential inauguration, which is a real bummer. And therefore, she's going to have a whole lot more attention. But that'll go two ways. There will be plenty of folks who will say, wow, that doesn't make sense. But there will be others who will be deceived by it. You and I must be committed to recognizing that that stricter judgment is a serious, serious issue. If you confuse someone or you lead them down a wrong path, whether you mean to or not, you'll be held accountable for that in the day of judgment. But really what we're addressing here is that you would be communicating truth. And so don't be concerned about the stricter judgment. Just be concerned about getting it right. Be concerned about studying trusting the Holy Spirit to give you godly people in your life to help you study and handle things well. You might not be teaching the Word of God in any context at all, it's really what we're talking about. You might not be doing that at all because you're brand new in the faith, and I would encourage you to restrain your lips for a while. So often, many times, a person with seemingly relatively high intelligence becomes a Christian, and all of a sudden, he thinks he has to be telling everybody everything he knows, which is almost nothing, but he thinks it's a lot. And the far better thing is to be discipled by someone who would say, hey, slow down there, man. Learn, grow, get some sound theology, and, and then with excitement and fervor and, and knowing that it'll be effective, start to pour into somebody else. And that, just, that requires discipleship, that you would be discipled so that you would disciple others. That's the pattern in Scripture so you, you might be brand new in the faith and you're thinking, I, I don't know much. Well, Praise God that you're knowing more and more week after week after week. And the Lord is beginning to use that as you minister to others, at least, at the very least, by way of your example and how you're living. You're becoming more humble. You're becoming more mature. And you're getting to the place where you're nurturing the courage to actually say something to someone that you hope will be helpful and not offensive or maybe more helpful than offensive. Truth is often offensive. You may not be teaching the Word of God because you may be being faithless. You may be overrun with other things. And so you really haven't set time aside to be faithful in the Scripture and to ensure that your faithfulness is leading to right outcomes, right interpretations. 
And so you may not really have much to say. Maybe you've led someone astray and it scared you. and You don't ever want to do that again. But it could be that you're spending so much time on other things that you don't really have time to spend on rightly studying the Word of God. That's why we have discipleship. You know, our discipleship is really pre-discipleship, right? Iron Man, WOW, 116, 412, that's pre-discipleship. That's a structure where we all meet together and you hear some teaching, you have some discussion about it, but that then should invigorate you to be involved in someone else's life. You know, this break that we've had, I hope that most of you have used that break from Ironman and WOW to spend time one-on-one or one-on-two or one-on-three. If you haven't, be excited that there's today and tomorrow. You can start now, really pouring into someone. You may be thinking that because I'm not gifted to teach in the Romans 12 or the 1 Corinthians 12 way, that that means you should never teach. Of course not. You've got the great privilege that to the degree that you understand truth, you should be communicating that to others, that they too would understand truth. Well, four points here for you. And as I said, these are really four marks that separate the spiritual child from the spiritual adult. That you and I would be teachers, that we would grow in our maturity and discernment, that we would be faithful and effective teachers. Number one, spiritual insensitivity. Here the author in verse 11 says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. What does he mean by about this? If you're reading the NAS, it says about him. This is a term that's either neuter or masculine. There's absolutely no way to know what the author intended. And so we look at context. And context would probably lead us to think that it actually is this and not him. Why? Because what he has immediately been talking about is Melchizedek, but not just Melchizedek, but the order of Melchizedek's priesthood, which really is a type or a foreshadowing of the priesthood of Jesus. So he's probably talking about this, not him. So when he says about this, again, he's talking about this form of priesthood. Hebrews 5 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, as he says also in another place. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a direct quote from Psalm 110, where David prefaces the quote with his own statement that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, God telling God the Son, you are forever a priest in this order. What order? The order of Melchizedek, which was a foreshadowing of what was to come in Christ's priesthood. Verse 7, Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Further in Hebrews 6, verse 19, the author says, 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's really our theme verse of our church. The reality is we do operate based on this truth. The anchor of the soul is the priesthood of Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek. Forward to Hebrews 7.1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Salem, a derivative of the term shalom, which means peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This forever, this eternal priesthood, a priesthood of righteousness, a priesthood that displays righteousness, the righteousness which would be perfectly displayed in the person of Christ. Genesis 14 verse 17 gives us the actual narrative of when this happened, this exchange between the king of Salem and Abraham. It says, after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is the first installment of anything related to Melchizedek. It's the narrative expression of Melchizedek's priesthood, that he is working as a broker, really a peacemaker. And he's doing so in such a way that displays the righteousness of God. Back to Hebrews 4, picking up where we left off in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's a very important phrase. Let me read it again. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Melchizedek representing the coming priesthood of Jesus Christ was the superior, not the inferior. And the superior provided a blessing to those who gave tithes. 
Jesus specifically than is compared to Melchizedek, beginning in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus was the first priest from the tribe of Judah, not the Levitical tribe. Melchizedek, establishing a pattern, coming out of nowhere, no father, no mother. A priesthood by a priest who's grafted in from a different tribe, not one who received the genetic order of priesthood, inheriting the priesthood from his father and his father and his father but establishing a priesthood that would set the stage for the priesthood of the one who would, in essence, come out of nowhere as the unexpected Messiah. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. You remember that phrase regarding Jesus' reverence? This is established as a pattern which Jesus would follow here in this statement about Melchizedek, the power of an indestructible life, a faithful life, a life that's devoted to righteousness. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, Right? You obeying the law, obeying the jots and tittles of the law doesn't make you perfect. You're still commanded to do it. You're still responsible, but you can't make yourself perfect. The law itself didn't make you perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We draw near to God through this priest. Did we draw near to God through the priest? The priest drew near to God. And the followers, the believers, the assembly enjoyed the overspill of the priest drawing near to God. But now we have that priest, a better priest. It's a better covenant, the new covenant. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. All other priests were insufficient to guarantee the covenant. They only gave a picture of the covenant. The former priests, verse 23, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They had to be replaced. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Did you know Melchizedek did not die? Because he didn't die, he is that picture of an eternal priesthood. 
He holds his priesthood permanently, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I called upon that reality in our opening prayer. Jesus, the forever priest, the one who paves the way, the one who established covenant, the one who received the penalty for all those who would believe in him and draw near to him. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. There's no need for that. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He did it one time for all eternity. The Old Testament high priest had to continue to sacrifice on a daily basis. This, by the way, is why we don't keep a crucifix which keeps Jesus dead on the cross. Jesus doesn't re-die for sins. He died once for all. And in that death, he accomplished propitiation. In that death, he satisfied God's wrath in God's demand for righteousness. Again, verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The work of the high priest in the Old Testament could not fulfill the law. It could not even do that which was necessary in order for someone to have salvation. It looked forward to that which did. So those who are stuck in Judaism even this day, they can't be saved in Judaism. They're leaning on the picture. So in literary terms, while Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, Jesus is a better high priest. Not on a scale of 1 to 10, where Melchizedek is a 6 and Jesus is a 10. Not on a spectrum, but in a different realm. In the same way that a picture of my wife is not as good as being with her. Oh, the picture will cause me to melt. But the real thing fills me with inexpressible joy to see her and hold her and to hear from her wisdom, love, and encouragement can only be imagined or remembered when looking at a photograph. While Melchizedek was an accurate picture of the coming high priest, he was only a picture. Jesus is the high priest who the author earlier in chapter 4 describes this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, different from Melchizedek, right? That's how he's different from Melchizedek. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's different from Melchizedek. Melchizedek could not sympathize with the weaknesses of the body. Some of them, yeah, by overlap, but not all of them. Jesus could sympathize with the weaknesses and does sympathize with all the weaknesses of every Christian. 
Hebrews 4 goes on to say, verse 15, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That's not Melchizedek. Melchizedek can't relate. Melchizedek could relate to his own temptations, but not all of yours. Jesus was tempted in every way, even as we are, and yet without sin. Not Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a sinner. Jesus, without sin, therefore, when God looks on you, he looks on you as if you did not sin, as if you are not a sinner, and therefore he, by grace, grants you salvation. So verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says it's hard to explain. This is hard to explain. The stuff I just explained, that's what he's saying. It's hard to explain. Not because it's hard to explain in and of itself, but because of dullness of hearing. That's hard to hear. Oh, the reason I didn't get it is my fault? Yeah, that's what he's saying. There are those who have become spiritually insensitive, dull of hearing. I had a college professor years ago. He said, you will rarely, if ever, find someone who is totally or completely deaf. He was my voice and diction teacher. Medically speaking, it's very, very unusual for someone to be absolutely, completely deaf. There's a spectrum, and many times a person at least has some level of hearing, whether they at least pick up vibrations, if not the more acute expressions of the human voice and music and other sources of sound. The person who has received forgiveness of sins from Jesus the high priest, who is the singular source of salvation, may be mostly deaf, but yet barely able to comprehend truth. He's no longer the natural man, but the spiritual man who can discern truth, but not much. After telling the great crowd by the Sea of Galilee the parable of the soils, the disciples ask him why he speaks in parables. He spoke in parables so as to befuddle those who don't have ears to hear. He goes on and he explains the parable of the soils. But when doing so, he explains to the disciples that this is the Christian code. This is the language of Christians. That Jesus would speak in a parable was done to colorfully illustrate the truths that he desired for them to know. But there were those who didn't have ears to hear and there were those who didn't have eyes to see. They didn't have illumination as we see in 1 Corinthians 2. There's still the natural man. But that's not who I believe the author of Hebrews is writing to. I believe he's writing to those who have ears to hear, eyes to see. They have illumination of the mind, newness of heart, and they're lazy. And they're not teaching. They're not communicating truth. They say, well, you know, maybe we can get the pastor over here to talk to him, which is not a bad thing, and I'm always honored and excited to do that. But if that's your constant default, let's have somebody else help this person. Then maybe you've become dull of hearing. Don't be discouraged to call me and ask me to come and help you with some sort of spiritual situation. That's a huge honor for me, and I'm always there to do that. 
I would never pass that up. But I got an email just this week from someone saying, what do you think I should say to my grandfather? Can you help me think through this? See, that's how this should work. That You and I would be talking about how we can minister to other people. How can we learn and grow and understand truth in such a way that it's nurturing growth in us that we would be excited to share it with others and have the the discernment and the sensitivity to be reverent and respectful to the unbeliever and at some point to choose not to correct the scoffer, Proverbs 9, to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in in us and to do it with gentleness and reverence, to be careful, trust the Lord for the timing and all of that. Jesus, as I said, explains the parable of the sower. But he indicates that there are those who cannot hear. After he does this, he tells them a few more parables, and he explains them in an effort to help them understand parables. But he does this with those who can understand. And it takes time, it takes practice, it takes effort. It needs to be repeated. That's how growth takes place. If you've been engaged in any kind of athletic effort to better your body for more stamina in whatever venue, then you know the more you do it over time, the better it goes. Remember years ago, I was asked to speak at an alumni banquet where I played football in college, and I um, got up and the first words I said to all these guys, we hadn't played football for five years. And I said, I just want you to know, guys, I was so excited about being here and seeing you and speaking to you. And so last Saturday, I went out and got in shape. (laughs) And um, they all could relate. Maybe you can, too. I started running again on Friday, and then I started napping again shortly after that. (laughs) But, you know, the question you and I must be asking is, have we become spiritually insensitive? Well, point number two, spiritual immaturity. I want you to see not only the spiritual insensitivity of the one who's become dull of hearing, he's really become spiritually deaf. There's some hearing, some awareness of the vibrations, the undertones of the reality of the Word of God, but he's not sharpened in his sensitivity to it. He's dull of hearing. But then point number two, spiritual immaturity. I want you to see the spiritual immaturity that the author speaks of here. For though, verse 12, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Hmm. He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. This isn't the endearing term that... John uses when he speaks to the little children in 1 John. It's not the term of endearment that Paul uses in reference to Timothy or in reference to Titus when he speaks of them as his spiritual children. This is an estimation of their spiritual maturity, rather their spiritual immaturity. Now, you know from 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, "...so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy." envy and all slander. Now listen to how this flows, because there's a command to do that, to stop slandering, to stop gossiping. But then the other side of the coin that enables you to do that is that you would, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The implication is that there is immaturity 
And so drinking spiritual milk is important. But the person who's six months, you know, 12 months, you know, five years, 10 years, is still a spiritual child after having been granted new life, after having been given spiritual birth, having been caused to be born again, who still has difficulty with the the deeper truths of the spiritual faith in such a way that it's just a discouragement to him and he won't even engage in it, much less communicate those things to others. What's the issue? He's dull of hearing. He's immature. Our author here says, clearly, you need to be taught again the basic oracles of God. You can't handle any sort of solid food. You need liquid nutrition. It goes down more easily. You don't even have to chew it, right? See, that's the person who just doesn't study. He just doesn't grapple with the Word of God. He only takes in that which requires no work at all. And when he gets to the more difficult issues of Scripture, especially those antinomies that seem like contradictions... He abandons the reality that there is that antinomy and he clings to one element of the Scripture while rejecting the other element. This is the essence of Arminianism, is it not? Leaning so heavily and emphasizing so much the responsibility of man that you would therefore deny the sovereignty of God. And therefore utterly and completely immature. This is why you have so often heard me say the person who will not embrace the doctrine of election can't grow spiritually. He's rejecting the basic truth of God's character. So he might think he's growing in maturity, but when he is confronted, when he is instructed by the truth of God's character, what does he do? He goes into meltdown. He gets angry. This can't possibly be true. This is so offensive. But the man who will humble himself will be lifted out of that immaturity into maturity. The basic oracles of God. What on earth is the author speaking of here? Well, Paul uses this term in Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew what is the value of circumcision? So in the context of what we're talking about today, we're really seeing the author call people out of Judaism to move on from Judaism into the reality of the freshness of the new covenant, the work of the true high priest, the one who is the object of the picture of Melchizedek. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the object of God's love. They were the apple of his eye. He chose the Jews because he chose the Jews, not by their own merit. But in choosing them, he entrusted them with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? And they were. Some were unfaithful. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No, the fact that they misused or rejected the Word of God, does that make God faithless? So many times, you've seen this so many times, and maybe you've been guilty, I can certainly say I've been guilty in many years past, 
of doing something to communicate God's truth, the oracles of God, but doing it so poorly and getting angry and frustrated, maybe even arguing with someone, that there would be those who would say, you know, God is really not worth my time because they think that you or I were the accurate expression of the character of God when we weren't. Same with the Jews. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. Though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Verse 5 then, Romans 3, and this is where it gets really heavy, and I'm so happy to share this with you right before I send you off to lunch. (laughs) But if our unrighteousness, this is such an important doctrine, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Now, what's he talking about at this point? He's been talking about the faithlessness of the Jews. And so the implication is that the Christians to whom he is writing are also guilty on some level of this faithlessness. And so he asked it again. Let me say it again. So important. I love this doctrine. It's so helpful. It's going to change your life if you've never heard this before. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? This is how I often like to illustrate this. The blackness of your unrighteousness, my unrighteousness, is the backdrop against which the whiteness, to illustrate it in color, of God's righteousness is best seen. Isn't that helpful? See, what what in the world is the purpose of sin? Why? Why would God preordain sin? Why would he do that? He's ordained all things, right? Scripture tells us that repeatedly. Why would he ordain evil? So that he would be seen in contrast to the lesser reality of man. You say, well, wouldn't it have been better if he just made, you know, God just made mankind kind of good? You know, and there would still be this great contrast. It wouldn't be the great contrast that you and I to see so that we would lean upon him, that he would need him, that we would be dependent upon him. This is a hard doctrine, but Paul explains it to those who have ears and who are not dull of hearing. The person who rejects this does not want to believe that he himself is not ultimately in control. Paul gives it to us in the form of a question. Then he says that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. You've read 1 Peter, right? You've read Lamentations 3, right? That God inflicts wrath temporarily upon his children. Why? To sanctify them. Is God unrighteous to do that? Genesis 50, verse 20 Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That's intent. That's what the word intended means, intent. God intended evil for good. That's how Joseph says it. Paul says here, I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, oh, he gets specific now about his own sin, and you should too. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? 
And why not do evil that good may come? You see, that's the sarcastic response of the unbeliever, but it's also the rebuttal of the believer who is dull of hearing and doesn't want to believe this. He assumes that that's the only response. Why not do good? Why not do evil? That good may come then, if that's how it works, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then he says this, their condemnation is just. Now, you know from Romans 8, verse 1, that Paul says, there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those who what? Who are in Christ Jesus. He's speaking here of the condemnation of the unbeliever who not only refuses to acknowledge this as truth, they slanderously charge the teachers of God's word of saying things like this. This is often the greatest attack against Calvinism. They accuse us of things that we are not saying. We are not saying that because God is sovereign, go ahead and sin. And Paul lays the foundation for refuting that right here by saying, and why not do evil that good may come? The people that ask that question in light of the truth of God's sovereign character are yet condemned, Paul is saying. If they stay in that disposition, they show themselves to be condemned and then Here in verse 9, Paul goes on to explain, what then, are we Jews any better off? (laughs) Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then that long list of expressions of that, and then the beautiful reality of the gospel laid forth for us in verse 23, where he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is the picture in Melchizedek's priesthood that was fulfilled in Jesus's priesthood. The shedding of blood for sin. In Romans 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All Melchizedek could do was point forward to the one who fulfilled the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. He says in verse 25 that we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. By his blood, right? A satisfaction that God satisfied God's wrath to be received by faith, by belief, not by works. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then this beautiful question, so then where is boasting? Where is boasting? It's excluded. The boasting of, I asked Jesus into my heart. The boasting of, I prayed a prayer and made him the Lord of my life. The boasting of, I made a decision for Jesus. All that boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so, 
the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is difficult to understand for those who are dull of hearing. That doesn't get the person off the hook who doesn't explain it well. But the point is that it is explainable. And to understand it really is to understand Jesus, that there was a foreshadowing of the priesthood of Jesus. But for the person who is without ears to hear and without eyes to see, this is boring. It's disinteresting. He can't understand it, doesn't want to try to understand it. Jesus is the fullness of the picture of Melchizedek's priesthood, and he is in such a way that it provides spiritual eyesight. It provides spiritual hearing. It provides spiritual illumination, and ultimately it provides spiritual maturity and spiritual sensitivity, which we'll look at together next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this really polarizing text of Scripture that shows to us that it is the result of spiritual insensitivity that some are not communicating the truth of God's Word. They've become dull of hearing, unable to grapple with the deeper truths of Scripture, very likely because there has been no interest in the milk of the Word. We ask that you would help us, each of us, to be devoted to drinking deeply from the nutritious liquid reality of the basic oracles of God, which was originally entrusted to the Jews, but given to us, as according to Romans 3, that the oracles of God, the basic oracles of God, include the reality that you are sovereign even over evil, and that you preordained evil so that you would be seen as righteous, and those who accuse the teachers of truth, of communicating the idea that you may as well sin if that is true, are yet condemned. Lord, those basic oracles of God that we see sweeping throughout the Old Testament, so basic and yet so quickly and easily and passionately rejected by those who are dull of hearing. Oh, Lord, help us to be gracious. Help us to be devoted to drawing near to the throne of grace that we might experience mercy and grace in the time of need that we too would be helpful to others. We ask this in the strong name of the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.